You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good to see you. Oh, goodness, there, there are some people out there, there aren't there? There are people. Good to see y'all. Man, I'm telling you what, the first crowd this morning was packed, and they were rowdy. They were. Unruly. A, a very unruly group of people, and you're much more sophisticated than they are, except for, those, except for that woman, Joanna, back there on the back row. We kind of have to... Dean, I want you to watch her. You know, she's, she gets out of control every now and then. I've got to do a fashion explanation. Please. Because I've had people all morning come up to me. See... This shirt here, this is Captain Hook. I'm doing my full regalia of the pirate pastor today. See, I've had this shirt for about 20 years. And about two or three weeks ago, my wife pulled it out of the closet and says, you know what, I'm going to sell this shirt. She's selling everything we've got. <laughs> or everything I've got. I noticed most of the things are, you know, are mine. And because she's doing some remodeling, so she's building some money up, you know, doing that. And that's fine. But I said, no, I, I like that shirt. She said, you hadn't worn it in 20 years. And I said, but I like it. And so I said, hang it up and I'll wear it. Now, she's driving back from Colorado today, bringing one of our grandchildren back here. And so I want somebody to take a picture and show her that I wore this shirt today so that she can't sell it. Well, and I, and I imagine, you know, in 20 years, you've kind of come into the identity hey. of a pirate as well. Oh, I thought you, you were supposed to say I'm filling out no, a little bit. No, no, you've got the, the eye yeah. patch well, now. The reason I never wore it before, it wasn't really appropriate because I wasn't a full-bore pilot, pirate, I, you know, and, and now I am. And now you're a full-blown pirate. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so it's, it's, it's appropriate now. Uh, I got a word this week from, uh, this morning actually, from the largest church in the state of Montana. They are doing the Fearless Series for Women about sexual abuse of women. And I'm telling you, they said they're having an incredible time. This week, I also heard from a church in Pennsylvania that's doing it, and they said they're really having a revival among their women. There's so much openness and sharing among the women, so every now and then, I want to bring you up to date on what's going on with that. I fly out of here on Thursday to go to Reno, Nevada. On Thursday night, I'm doing a fearless event for women uh, in the Reno area, and then Friday night, I'm speaking to a group of probably three or 400 people that I'm not real sure exactly what that is, but they've, they've asked me to speak, and then I'll be back here on Saturday, and we'll be back here teaching on Sunday morning. That's right. I uh, want to just give a special shout out as well to a good friend, Andrea, in the back, who is uh, a part of the cohort with me in the Doctor of Education program, uh, lives in... Oklahoma now, uh, just moved there from Missouri. That is not legal to come south of the Red River. I know, I know, but here she is. So as you uh, pray for me and my pursuit of the doctorate, pray for her as well and the whole cohort. It's a rigorous program and uh, we are uh, feeling the weight of it for sure. And so uh, glad to have you here with us. Good. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude, that little, uh, one little uh, uh, chapter uh, just before the book of Revelation. And uh, we're continuing our study of the book of Jude under the title of Contentious Christianity. You know, in 2003, Prince William in England uh, had his 21st birthday. It's hard to believe that he's that old, but uh, if 2003 had his 21st, then how old does that make him? Somebody do the math. I'm not good on math. But, you know, he had his birthday party at Windsor Castle with 300 guests invited. And he had one guest that was not invited. His name is Aaron Barshak, and he is a self-described, now get this, comedy terrorist. 
So he does comedy, but he dresses up like a terrorist. And he actually crashed Prince William's 21st birthday party wearing a pink dress, a turban, and a fake beard like Osama bin Laden. And what's really scary is that he actually got past eight alarms before he eventually wound up on the stage with Prince William as Prince William was giving his uh, birthday speech, and that's when they dragged him off out, outside. Eight alarms he got past, the first of which was when he was scaling the outside wall of Windsor Castle. Now, you would think that would be a sign. This dude probably doesn't belong. He probably did not have an invitation, but he was eight times, eight alarms went off, and he was still able to get to the stage. Now, why did that happen, and why was that even possible? It was possible because no one took the alarms seriously. Nobody, sorry, don't blow that COVID stuff on me. Woo, no, <laughs> no one, they say bless you because he just expelled demons. That's, uh -huh. that's yeah. where that... That's where that came from, actually. That one, that one came from deep down, man. That, that was, was, well, that was a big one. That was Beelzebub. Um, no one actually listened to the, to the alarms. Last Sunday, if you, were, you probably weren't here at the, at when it happened because it happened before the first service, but last Sunday, just before the first service, the uh, fire alarm went out, went off in the, in the building in there, and it was loud because they're meant to be, and it, they were flashing lights because they're meant to get your attention. Fortunately, there was no fire, but it was his wife, Jessica Bledsoe, who was burning her toast out there in, the, in the, the, the kitchen out there, and so it set the fire alarm off. But it was interesting, the different responses that people gave to the alarm. Some people, first thing they did is they started looking around to see what everybody else was going to do. Okay, so this is definitely not your leader, okay, who's, who's doing that. Nope. And then some stood and just in spot and covered their ears because it was loud. And then there were some who headed for the door. Let's be honest, a few. Uh, yeah, a few, a few. Somebody said, all right, leave the building. I heard that. And then a few of them headed for the front door. Now, I want to announce to you that the third response, leaving the building, is the only correct response to a fire alarm. That means you're taking the, the alarm seriously until you discover perhaps that it might be a, a false alarm. I have to confess, I was in the second group, I covered my ears and I stood still. Same. But the reason I did that is because I didn't believe the alarm. I didn't believe there was a fire. There was no smoke, there were no flames, so I'm thinking, no worries. See, I heard the alarm, I just didn't believe the alarm, and so I didn't respond to the alarm. But you see, folks, alarms are meant to be heard and to be believed in order to save your life. Now, when we come to this little book of Jude, in essence, what Jude is doing, he is sounding an alarm. In verse 4, he's informed these Christ followers that there are apostates who have crept in among them and are seeking to lead them astray into false teaching, false doctrine, immoral living, all those kind of things. And he says to them in verse 3 that they are to contend for the faith. In other words, they're, they're not to follow these people, but they are actually fight for the truth of God's word, his truth, and stand upon that. And he's used, through this book so far, he's used several approaches to sound this alarm. That's what he's been doing all from the beginning, just sounding this alarm and uh, of reminding them of what would happen 
will happen to the apostate, but what could also result in their lives if they were to follow them in their their erroneous ways. He used some examples from Hebrew history, the wilderness wanderings, those kinds of things, how God treated them when they didn't believe him. He used some examples from these very apostates' lifestyle about what their unbelief has led them, how it has led them to live. And then last week really was a fun message where we talked about five examples that Jude uses out of nature to talk about that, that what these people are offering, they can't, they can't produce. They're, they're like this, uh, you know, waterless cloud. They're like these jagged rocks that will you know, sink your ship and they're like a rogue wave and they're like a dead tree that can't bear fruit. So he, five examples from, from nature to give them an idea that of, of why they have to listen to this alarm and stay away from following them. This week we come to verses 14 through 16, three verses, and he's sounding the alarm again. This time he's talking about judgment, about judgment that is going to come. And he points back to one time of judgment that God had already executed, which was the flood. And then he looks forward to another kind of judgment, and that is going to be at the second coming of Jesus. So he, he, and he talks about this dude named Enoch. You know, Enoch is a guy that we don't know a lot about because he's only mentioned three times in the entire New Testament, in the entire Bible. Uh, But every time he is mentioned, it says something very significant and very powerful about this man named Enoch. And so before we really get into the, the alarm part of this thing, I want to spend a few moments and just talk about the life and times of Enoch so then we can make a very practical application here for us. And then Derek's going to take us a little bit deeper in I want you, first of all, to notice the times of Enoch. In other words, when Enoch was, was uh, alive. He, uh, verse 14, it says that Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. Now, we're all descendants of Adam, okay? We're all, we've all received the sin nature of Adam, and we're all descendants of Adam, but Enoch, when he was living, he was only seven generations removed from Uh, from Adam and Eve in the garden. And the sin that began in the garden had already escalated to exponential proportions. Mm. In fact, the times of Enoch are actually leading right up to the times of Noah because Noah was Enoch's great-grandson. And Jesus talks about the times of Noah. I mean, man, it was bad, bad, bad. And in fact, Matthew 24, verse 37 says, for the coming of the Son of Man is gonna be like the days of Noah. And Scripture talks about that. It was really a bad, bad time. And he says, when I come again, when Jesus said, when I come again, it's gonna be like that again. Just like that first judgment came, the second judgment, the final judgment is gonna be just like that. So what were the days of Enoch like? Well, Genesis 6 describes them for us. First of all, the scripture tells us that they were days of disregard. Verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man for, forever. So here's the problem. So they had a man like Enoch. Later they had Noah who was sounding the alarm, telling them to turn back to the Lord, but nobody was listening. And God said, Look, I'm not going to let this go on forever. Okay, there's a, there's a time clock that's, that's ticking here and my spirit's not gonna strive with man forever. But even though they had Enoch and even though they had Noah, they weren't listening. They were disregarding God. They were days of disbelief. In verse five, it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that a very, the very intent of the thoughts and of, the man, of man's heart was only evil continually. I mean, this was so bad. Every thought they had was an evil thought because it came out of an evil heart. And so the, they were disbelieving God. And they were disbelieving Enoch and Noah who were calling them back. So they rejected God's call and they fell deeper and deeper into sin. And it says also there were days of danger. 
Verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and all the earth was filled with violence. I mean, this is lions, tigers, and bears. I mean, this is dangerous stuff. And this is the condition that the human race had fallen into when Enoch is alive. Mm. So now let's talk then about the life of Enoch. We've talked about his times. What about this guy living in the midst of all this stuff? As I said, we're only given three statements in Scripture about Enoch, but they're all very revealing. Genesis 5 tells us that Enoch walked with God. Now, when the Scripture talks about a walk, it's talking about a lifestyle. And so Enoch was, in a sense, is telling us that Enoch had a, a lifestyle of being dedicated to God. In fact, Enoch's name in Hebrew means dedicated. And he lived up to his name. So we know that Enoch walked with God in this intimate relationship. Hebrews 11, it says that Enoch pleased God. And it's interesting, that's the great faith chapter. Yep. And in that very same chapter, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? It's impossible to please God. Help me up. Come on. Y'all, are y'all here? Are you awake? Did we scare you and say the first service was rowdy? Get rowdy, folks. Come on. We need help up here. You're killing me, man. This is a tough crowd. They are. But they're not unruly. They're not unruly, but they're tough. So get unruly. I'd rather preach to unruly than to, to dead quiet, okay? Uh, Hebrews 11 says in the very opening of that chapter that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, it says that Enoch was a man of faith. And so Enoch was pleasing to God. He walked with God. He was pleasing to God. And then we come to Jude 14. It says he spoke for God. God gave a prophecy, prophetic statement through Enoch to the people of his day of what was going to come. So Enoch lived, here's the practical application. Enoch lived in difficult times. He lived in times of disregard, times of disbelief, times of extreme danger, but yet, listen to this, he walked with God, he placed his trust in God, and he spoke for God. Mm. Now, here's a huge challenge for us, folks. Living in godless times, as we are, as every time has been godless in the history of the world, Living in godless times is no excuse for godless living. I mean, Enoch, look, the, the values and the morals and the ideologies of our culture and of every culture in human history are constantly morphing. They're constantly changing. And they're always ungodly. This is secular culture, folks. There's no such thing as a godly culture in this world because the Scripture says that the enemy... Satan himself is the God of this world. And so every culture in history has been a godless culture. Some of them have shown that on the outside more than others have, but they have all been godless. So listen, it's always been difficult to follow the Lord in culture. It's never been easy, and Jesus told us it wouldn't be. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, in this illustration, Jesus is the master, right? And who are we? The servants. So Jesus says, I want to remind you who you are. You know, you're not all that, you know, people are just not that great, They're right? not that great. Okay. So Jesus said, I'm the master, you're the servant. And let me just inform you that the servant is never greater than the master. And then he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they hated me, they will hate you. In other words, Jesus is preparing for the disciples that in any time, in any point in history, in any culture, it's not gonna be easy to really obey him, to trust him, to honor him, to walk with him any more easy than it was in the times of Enoch. And that's why in all of scripture, we're exhorted to stand firm. Don't be tossed around. Don't be intimidated. Don't follow them and stop your freaking whining. Now, that's not a literal translation of the Greek text. But I think it's what Paul really wanted to say, and the Holy Spirit just wouldn't let him. Yep. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says to these Corinthians who were living in the midst of a godless city, he said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, you have to say men and women today, but you get it. He's talking about, you know, all of us. Come on, stand up. Don't be wimps. Don't, sorry, Ralph and Sue, wimp. Uh, don't, don't be whiners. You see, folks, it's never been easy to live for Jesus in a, in a secular culture. It never has been. It wasn't in Enoch's days. It wasn't in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's day. It's not in our day. Stop your whining and stand up. Jesus said, it's not going to be easy. It never has been, and it never will be. The life, of, the life and times of Enoch was a man who stood out for the Lord in a time when it was not easy, mm. and it's still not today. And the question is, are you standing out? The second thing is the life and times of Jude. The life and times of Jude. We come to Jude's time, and what we discover is that the world is not significantly different than it was during Enoch's time. A lot of significant events had taken place, namely the death, burial, and resurrection mm. of Jesus. <laughs> so a lot of significant things happened, but the world was not significantly different. Jude lived in the same kind of days that Enoch saw. They were days of disregard. The people in Jude's time, in the church even, mm -hmm. had begun to disregard Old Testament history. They were given examples in the Old Testament. Examples, things that they were to pay attention to that they didn't pay attention to. Part of the reason, you need to understand this, why we have the Old Testament is that it serves as an example to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. He's saying the Old Testament events are meaningful, listen, because they teach us something. Because we learn something. We were taught how to act, how not to act. And yet during Jude's time, many people had begun to disregard it. We covered this several weeks ago, but Jude wrote about this uh, just a few verses prior to this. The way of Cain, the way of trying to earn your salvation by works rather than by grace. We talked about Balaam, the, the false non-Israelite prophet who taught Balak how to lead the Israelites mm -hmm. into idolatry and sin. And he was talked to by an ass. <sighs> yes. And I have too a few times. He, yes. That's the King James translation of donkey. donkey. Okay. Yes, right. Low-hanging fruit joke, but it's, it's fine. It's there. I thought if it was talking if, if about you people. Have, if you have the KJV, then that's what it says. I thought it was talking says. about obstinate people. He told, he, probably. <laughs> he talks about Korah's rebellion and a rejection of God's authority. He goes through the list about how these people had disregarded Old Testament history. They didn't learn anything. And beyond that, they had begun to reject human history. It's interesting that he talks about this biblical character, Enoch, and he actually quotes a prophecy that is attributed to Enoch. In Jude 14 and 15, it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So Enoch is the one prophesying saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way (laughs) of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken (laughs) against him. You get the feeling he's talking about ungodly people here. That's three ungodly, and that's ungodly. That's a lot. (laughs) Three ungodly, that's bad. So this is a, a quote that Jude is attributing to Enoch. And the question becomes, where does it come from, right? He says the Lord is going to come with 10,000 angels. He's going to execute judgment on all these ungodly individuals, all the people that Jude has been talking about, the apostates, the false teachers, those who had crept in and begun to reject God's truth and lead others astray. The Lord is going to come with his angels and execute judgment on them. But where does the quote come from? He's, He's writing this as a quote. It's interesting that the uh, quote actually comes from a non-biblical source. It's an old book that we call First Enoch. First Enoch 1.9, to be exact. We don't have a date for when this was written. We don't know who wrote it. It predates Jesus' time by hundreds of years. We have uh, documents from Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, with part of Enoch in that, that, that predate Jesus' time by hundreds of years. It likely predates much of the Old Testament. It's a very, very old book. But it was never a part of the Bible. The Jewish people never regarded it as a part of their canon. It was never a part of the Old Testament. It wasn't seen as authoritative by early believers. The early church did not regard it as a part of Scripture. And so it's not a lost book of the Bible. It's not like something that got removed by Rome or whatever the Discovery Channel wants you to believe. But it was revered as an important historical work, very important historical work. It would be akin to uh, picking up a book written by a now dead American hero writing about American history in some really uh, incredibly important time in our nation's past. You would never shape your entire life in eternity around that book, but it certainly might inspire you to live a little bit differently. And it would certainly confirm to you what history says, acceptable history. And the same could be said about First Enoch. Jude is not quoting this as scripture. He doesn't mean for you to uh, go and buy a copy of it and add it to your Bible study list. <laughs> right, but he does see it as a valuable historical work that have aspects of it that are very true, that confirm the biblical text. The matter of fact is, Jesus will come back, Mm -hmm. he will come back with angels, and he will execute judgment on the ungodly. Those are not untrue things. And so Jude quotes this, this book, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, because it does reinforce what Scripture says. Mm -hmm. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That is consistent with what Enoch says. Revelation 19.13 describes the second coming of Christ. It says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. It goes on two verses later and he says he comes, uh, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Sound like some tough times. You will not hear that verse <laughs> preached on on Christian television. I'm just be honest with you right now. Revelation 19:15 ain't getting put on a coffee mug. Um, not on no. a coffee mug. No. Yeah, that's right. So this this is the message of Scripture. There is coming a day of judgment when ungodly people who have rejected truth will be punished. It's going to happen. So mm. I think Jude quotes it in part to reinforce what Scripture has already said. 
But secondly, and I think this is, man, this is so timely for us today, it is to remind his audience and us what history says. Jude has already, at this point in the letter, appealed to the Old Testament. We already talked about that. He then appeals to nature. We talked about that last week. Now he's appealing to history, just regular old human history, a historical book. And the question becomes why? I think it's because of what was happening in Jude's day and age. I want you to consider for a moment how society or how a culture implodes upon itself. How the destruction of a society takes place. And, and it begins, it's really just four simple steps. If you want to see the demise of a society, the, the end of a culture, four simple steps. It begins with what we've been talking about really this whole time in this sermon series, which is step one, you reject objective truth. That's where it begins. You begin by re rejecting the whole concept of objectivity. Truth, when it becomes no longer objective, it can be whatever I want it to be. Everyone just does what they want. If you've been in our life Bible studies right now, we're studying the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25, it actually says this prior to this in, in, in chapter 16 as well. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They each had their own truth. And if you're reading and following <laughs> along in Sunday school, in life Bible study, you figure out very quickly that everyone doing what was right in their own eyes works out very badly. <laughs> It does not go well for the people. This is what was happening in Jude's day. It's no doubt what is happening in our day as well. People questioning objective truth. You just live, a court, you just live your truth. You just do you and I'll do me. I'll live my truth. You live your truth. And, and we'll, just, we'll just live and let live, right? And that leads you to step two. You redefine morality. If there is no objective truth, then morality becomes a subjective issue. In other words, what you may deem moral may not be what I deem moral. And so what you, what you end up hearing in, in dialogue then is people saying, well, you have no right to tell me how to live. You know, you're just being judgmental and hateful. You know, it, it, I'm living my truth, and, and I get to decide what's right for me, not you. Who, who are you to decide that? Does that sound familiar? Hmm. And then that leads you to step three. You revile those who disagree with you. So you, you begin to brainwash a culture into thinking that anyone who disagrees with what you are doing should be chastised. They should be reviled. We call this in our day and age cancel culture, right? <laughs> not only do you not get to tell me how to live, not only do you not get to tell me what's right, but if you tell me that I am wrong, you ought to be shut down. You ought to be silenced. You will be reviled and chastised, and that leads to step four, and this is really where Jude is getting at, you rewrite history according to the new rules. Mm. So you go back and consider history. You, you rewrite those events that took place, but through the new lens that you are looking for, you remember things differently. You see them now through the lens of, of no objective truth, redefined morality, and you've silenced those who would challenge you, and so now I have the freedom to go back and think about things in a very different manner than how they actually occurred. Let me give you an example right out of the Old Testament of how you can see these steps unfold. It's really remarkable. Uh, Israel in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. They are supernaturally and radically saved by God. They're pulled out from the evil of Pharaoh in Egypt, and they experience in that book, in Exodus, the pinnacle moment of Old Testament history. There is nothing bigger in the entire Old Testament than the Passover. Hmm. So you've got to understand, when you read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the greatest prophet in those books is Moses, 
And the greatest act of God is the Passover. This is why the New Testament talks about it so much, because these are monumental moments. Not only that, but the Israelites experienced the presence of God in a way that was powerful. He had revealed himself in such a powerful and remarkable way. Even after they left Egypt, the pillar of smoke and the the fire that would lead them by day and night. I mean, God was with them. It was incredible. And yet, consider the trajectory of their story. (laughs) Life in the wilderness is hard, but God gives them Moses as their leader. He's the mouthpiece of God. He's a prophet. So whatever Moses says is what God says. And, And then he gives them manna from heaven. To to provide for them all the things that they need to survive in the wilderness. God is taking care of them in every single level. And then think about what they do. Step one, they reject objective truth. By what? Rejecting Moses. Since Moses is the mouthpiece of God, everything he says is true. So when Moses says, do this and don't do that, what do they do? The opposite. They reject Moses, and by extension, they reject God's truth. And then what happened? Step two, they redefine morality. While Moses is off on the mountain with God, they're like, hey, you know what we ought to do? We should melt all of our jewelry and make a giant calf and have a huge idolatrous worship service. It doesn't matter that Moses said that we shouldn't do that. It doesn't matter that God said we shouldn't do that. We can do. Sounds like fun. Yeah, we should do what makes us happy, right? (laughs) Step two, they just redefine their their morality. Then what does that lead to? Step three, they begin to revile Moses and even God himself. Why? Because Moses and God become hostile towards them because they're living like idiots. (laughs) Bunch of morons. And they don't like that. So what do they do? (laughs) They murmur and they complain and they grumble and they act like the... Yeah, morons that they are. Step four, they rewrite history. You begin hearing them say things like, we ought to go back to Egypt. Egypt was good. You know, life was awesome then. Those were the days. Those were the days, the golden yeah. years the of Israel. The of Egypt. Right. We ought to go back to, this, to, to, to the 20-hour forced labor and, and, and the, the dying in the labor fields and, and being abused by our Egyptian masters. That was great. We ought to do that. It, it wasn't. But see, they began looking at it through a different lens. Once you object truth or reject truth and you redefine morality and you revile and you shut down anyone who challenges you, you are left on your own to begin looking back on how things were a lot differently than they actually were. Hmm. And this, folks, is how you destroy a society, a culture, or a nation. It's just that simple. So here's the deal. Jude quotes first Enoch, I believe, to remind his audience of what actual history says because they had rejected actual history. Mm-hmm. They'd not only rejected God's truth, they'd not only begun to live in whatever moral sense that they wanted, they were reviling anyone in the church who disagreed with them, and they were even rewriting biblical and human history through this new lens. They were saying things like, oh, God isn't going to judge us. He's not going to condemn God wants us to be happy. He loves us. He wants us to live our best lives now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, every day is a Friday. God wants you to just take up the blessing just, and live above all of... This is revisionist history. Uh, and, and Jude is holding up history and saying, you're wrong. Sounds a little bit like today. Sounds a little bit just like Just a little today. bit. A little bit. They're living in days of disregard. Not only that, they're living in days of disbelief. I mean, this shouldn't be surprising to us. The whole sermon series has been centered around combating mm. disbelief. There wouldn't be much to contend against if disbelief had not crept into the church. But look at what kind of disbelief there is. Verse 16, 
He says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, <laughs> showing favoritism to gain advantage. These are not good descriptions. This is not how, like, you don't want your Sunday school described this way, right? <laughs> like a Google boasters. review, went to this church, tried out the Bible study. They're grumblers and malcontents, and they're loud-mouthed boasters. This is not what you want people saying about you. And yet, this is, this is Jude's audience, now look at the first three the characteristics. They're grumblers, they're murmuring, they're malcontents, they're not content with the circumstances that they're facing, they're following their own sinful desires. I mean, that, all three of those sound like the Israelites in the wilderness. Yeah. That, that encapsulates the whole spirit of Israel in the wilderness. And not much had changed in Jude's day as well. These were days of disregard, days of disbelief, and days of danger. I mean, the whole premise of First Enoch is judgment is coming. It's going to happen any moment now. Judgment might come. So you've got to understand that Jude, by reading First Enoch, is sounding the fire alarm. He's saying, people, pay attention. Stop covering your ears in the foyer hey, and go out on. into the parking lot. <laughs> Give me a break, dude. <laughs> I, was, I was covering my ears as I well. I was trying to be vulnerable, and you're using it against using me. Using it against you. <laughs> He's saying, some of you have rejected God's truth. And you've begun to live however you want, and, and, you, and you want to shut up anyone who challenges you, and you're even looking back and, and, and saying, no, that's not how things were, and, and you need to know that God is going to judge you whether you believe it or not. That's right. And that leads us to our last point. The, the reality is, is that Jude's time was not so different than Enoch's time, and if we're being honest, neither is our time. James is going to finish with the life and times of us. I've got 11 minutes left, and it's exactly what we had in the first service. So we know we can do it. Are we good or what? We're good, man. Okay. It's like a science. It's like I we're professionals. I, we're Unbelievable. <laughs> don't try this at home. Unbelievable. We are professionals. Okay, let's talk for a moment. Wrap this thing up a little bit. The life and times of us. We've talked about life and times of Enoch, life and times of Jude. Now the life and times of us. Let's bring it home. It says in verse 14 that... Out, quote, out of First Enoch, the Lord came with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. The word came is in the past tense. And many of you in your translation, if you have the King Jimmy, the good news for 17th century man, it translates it in the past tense. Other translations translate it in the present tense. In the Greek text, it actually is a past tense verb, but it is there for a specific literary vehicle purpose. It's yep. what we call the prophetic preterite or the prophetic past. You see, sometimes in Greek, Greek will use a present tense verb to refer to a past event. That's called the historical present. And it's used for the purpose of creating a sense of urgency. It's like the, the author is telling this story and he's taking it out of the past and he's bringing it right now to the, to the present. Mark does this in his gospel a great yep. deal. He'll, he uses the word immediately and then he'll use a historical present. He'll take a past event and he'll tell it as if he's around the campfire and he's just really getting you in and drawing you into this story. Well, sometimes the uh, prophetic past is used uh, for an event that's going to happen in the future, but it speaks of it in the past, and it does so because it is so certain that this event is going to take place that the Greek speaks of it as if it has already happened. Mm. And in fact, Jude, when he's talking about judgment, he's talking about two judgments, one that has already come, and one that is going to come in the future. The one that has already come is the flood in the days of Noah. Remember, Noah was Enoch's great-grandson. So Enoch and Noah were contemporaries for, for several hundred years. 
And so the times of Noah were the times of Enoch and, the, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so here, here, here you know, that God said the judgment's going to come and it came. But there's another Jude is referring to that is another judgment. It's the final judgment. It's the time with the coming of Christ. And that's the one that Jude is primarily focusing on. But in essence, he's saying, don't forget what God did in the past. Mm. God said judgment is going to come in the days of Enoch and Noah, and it came. He says judgment is going to come in the times of Jesus, and it's going to come, and it's going to be the final judgment. But you see, they didn't listen back then, and Jude is saying, don't be like them. Listen, because God is sounding this alarm. That's right. So what do we know about this second judgment? Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 17 tells us three things. Tells us about the return of the Savior. It says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Jesus is coming again. He promised he would and he is coming. Second of all, then the resurrection of those who are saved that have died in Christ. And the dead in Christ, it says, will rise first. And then there is this, we use the word rapture because it works with the R's, okay? There is the rapture of the saints. Those who are living on earth, who are alive and are in Christ, will not face physical death, will be immediately transported into eternity with Christ. So you see, God always works on a timeline. Everything God does, he does with a timeline. You see, did you know there was a timeline for the flood? That didn't just happen out of nowhere. God told them that this flood was gonna come and he set a ticking clock. And when that clock came to its last second is when it happened. This is really kind of interesting. I know for you, for you math nerds, you're gonna enjoy this. For the rest of us that are not math nerds, it's kind of hard to we're, keep we're up. We're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. We're going to struggle. But yeah. I, want, I want you to stay with me and, and understand this. That God's time clock for that first judgment, that judgment of the flood, is given to us in Genesis 5 and 6. And it does begin with Enoch. Okay? It's in Enoch's day, God started a time clock toward the flood. A time clock toward him when he was going to bring judgment upon the earth for these things that Derek has been talking about. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, it says that Enoch was 65 years old when his son Methuselah was born. He got a late start, okay? Let's put it that way. He had some rough and college years. He had some rough college and, yeah. years at trying to get a career started or whatever. But you're going to see some numbers of people that lived before the flood, hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's lots of explanations for that. We're not going to go into that yet, but the atmosphere was different before the flood, all kinds of stuff. But the point is that at 65... Methuselah is born. He's a very famous man in the Old Testament. He lived longer than any man, which is an example of God's mercy and grace. In fact, Methuselah's name in Hebrew, it's a little difficult to get a, an English translation out of, but it, it means in essence, when he is gone, it will come. Mm. So giving an idea that when Methuselah's go- gone, something's going to happen. What is that it's going to come? What is it that's going to come? The flood. The flood of Noah. Your day of blessing. The judgment of your day of blessing is going to come. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Methuselah then, who was born when Enoch was 65, has his first son, his name is Lamech. And Methuselah was 187 years old. He had even a tougher college years than, than Enoch did. And then... Methuselah has his first son, 182 years later, his name was, I mean, Lamech, his name was Noah. So Noah was Enoch's great-grandson. Now let's do the math for a moment, okay? Methuselah is 187 years old when his son Lamech is born, and Lamech 
waited 182 years before they had Noah when Noah was born. So you put 187 and 182 together. Methuselah was 369 years old when Noah was born. Are you getting that? He was 369 years old when Noah was born. If the scripture says that Methuselah lived 600 years as a contemporary with Noah. After Noah's birth, Methuselah continued to live for 600 years. And when Noah was 600 years old, Methuselah died. At the age of 369 plus 600, which is 969 years. It's wild the math, James, because Genesis 7:11 tells us that the flood came in Noah's 600th year. The year that Methuselah died. When he is gone, it will come. You see, when Methuselah was born, God set an alarm. God set a time clock, and it lasted for 969 years, which is an expression of God's mercy and grace, giving people an opportunity to respond to Enoch and respond to Noah. But he said, if you all that have not, at this point, when Methuselah dies, judgment is going to come. So Jude is pointing back. Yep. He's looking back at that. Listen, remember God promised them it was going to happen, and it did happen. Look forward. God has promised that final judgment is going to happen, and it's going mm. to happen. Mm. In fact, there was a time clock that after the flood, God started another time clock for the birth of Jesus. Paul gives it to us in Galatians. Great text. I think it's Galatians 5.14. I, I cannot remember. Um, you know, I'm not as smart as I used to be. But he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God set a time clock after the flood. He said, you know, and, and when, when history is just right, when the fullness of time had come, when, the, when my clock hits its last tick, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's right. At the ascension of Christ, God set another time clock. And you know what that is? When Jesus shall come, with trumpet sound and the angels and the dead in Christ shall be raised first and all those who are alive will rise to meet him in the air. That is going to happen. You say, well, James, when? I don't know. God does because he has a time clock. He had a time clock for the flood. He had a time clock for the birth of Jesus. He has a time clock for the second coming of Jesus. I don't know. Nobody knows. And any moron that writes a book saying he does is an idiot. Yeah, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, no one knows when the Son of Man will come again, except the Father. No, except Hal Lindsey. Not even, yeah, not even the Son knows. So understand, any Christian author who claims to know when Christ is coming back is claiming to know something that Christ himself doesn't know. Keep, just bear that in mind. Next time you want to get read a prophetic book. Save $25 and don't buy the put book. Put it in the bathroom yeah. or something. Read the know. Bible. It's better. We're going to run out of toilet paper anyway. Let me, let, me just, let me just say... I'm just, I'm just really upset with this stuff. I just get sick and tired of these morons. Can you, can you tell we're salty? Um, <laughs> let me just say that, that as important as it was in Jude's time to sound the alarm, it is all the more important in our time. Hmm. And it's not to be an alarmist. It's not to, you know, nothing like that at all. But the reality is the world is not getting better. It's getting worse. The time clock began when, when Jesus ascended to the Father. 
Revelation tells us that this, at this exact moment, Satan is thrown down onto the earth and bound here until the second coming, which explains why the world becomes dramatically worse mm. after all of this. And it will continue to get worse until the clock, or the clock strikes midnight and Christ comes with angels to execute judgment on the ungodly. It will happen. It is going to happen. It happened the first time. It happened when Jesus came the first time. And it will happen again. Your money better be on that. That fire alarm's going off saying, this building is going to burn. You it's going to get burn. out of it. You better get out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I had someone text me first service and say, you, ought to, you, ought to, you should have named this message, sinners are going to burn like burnt toast. <laughs> the alarm is going off. <laughs> The toast is burning. (laughs) Are you heeding the alarm? That's the question. Are you heeding the alarm? Are you living, are you patterning your life after the New Testament, after God's word? Or are you saying, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's fun to read and all that, but you know, I kind of, I don't think God would be that mad at me if I did this or that. Don't fall into that kind of thinking. Don't fall into the crowd that Jude is speaking out against, that same crowd that is still very alive and well today. Contend. Contend with them. Reject them. Put them away because they will only lead you to destruction. Hmm. I hope you'll consider that. I hope that you are paying attention. This, this study of Jude has been so challenging. Man, I've been preaching and teaching for over 40 years, and I never taught through the little book of Jude. Never did it. Not yeah. one time. Yeah. Because I always thought, 20-something verses? I mean, how exciting can that be? <laughs> you know, I read it, but yeah. I never studied it. Yeah. And when we decided to do Jude, we started studying this thing. This thing could have been 50 chapters long. Easily. If Jude had really explained all of those images that his audience didn't need somebody to explain because they'd been raised on this history, Jewish history, and so right. he just mentioned something. They all know what he's talking about. Us bunch of, you know, Gentiles, we have to go back and, well, what, is it, what happened to that, you know, well, in the Old Testament there? Bill, yeah. and, and it could have easily been 50 chapters long. This is the richest book in the New Testament for the amount of space that is given to it. Yep. And we've got about eight or ten verses left. And I will tell you... Um, when that trumpet sounds, uh, the world is going to be a lot worse when that happens. Yeah, it ain't get better. No. And, it, you know, and Joel Osteen may be telling you, can you live your best life now? No, you're not going to live your best life now. You're not going to get it here. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I don't know if Jesus is going to come in our lifetime, but that is heresy, folks. Jesus said, you're not greater than I am. Who do you think you are? Jesus said, they hate me. They persecute me. They're going to crucify me. And you think you're going to have it better than I do? You think you're better than the master? No. Don't listen to that stuff. Don't buy their crap books and don't listen to their crap sermons. Stay in the word of God. Always. It will never lead you astray. It will never fail you. And that's what Jude is trying to get his hearers to do. Don't listen to these people. They're going to take you places and they're going to offer you things they cannot produce. Listen, listen, listen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that your word is, uh, well, it's just so perfect the way that you you set your time clock and and then you even show us and reveal to us in just these nuanced kinds of ways how you always do what you said you'll do. You did it then and you do it now. Mm -hmm. And what you've promised will come to pass. And 
you're the same yesterday, today, and, and tomorrow, and forever, and, and nothing's going to change with you. And so that gives us an anchor in the midst of this raging sea, this world in which we're living. So I thank you for that. I pray for some of your folks today that are hanging on in, in so many ways with uh, grief from the loss of a loved one or loss of a job or loss of health or all of those kinds of things to just say, I'm just going to anchor my, my life and my heart and my hope to Jesus That's right. and God's Word. And if it's difficult, then I'll look to my Savior and say, well, it was difficult for him. And he promised me that, that I would not be better. Mm. But yet I have a promise of hope that he's with me and I'll be with him. Lord, sustain us with this truth. In the midst of a world that wants to hear that just following Jesus is going to make your life better in this world according to the world's standards. And what a lie that is but how great it is to have hope in the midst of it all. For this we pray in the strong and the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless y'all. Bless you. You got 11 minutes to get home. Turn the Cowboys on. And let me just tell you, they will promise you something and they cannot (laughs) deliver. (laughs) They are like these apostates. They promise what they will not deliver.